The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What brings you to Ioclus, boy? Come to find my mother. Who is your mother? Polymile. Bring her. How should we know you're not an imposter? I have this amulet given to me by my mother. Do you know what we do with fraudsters? I'm not the fraud. You summoned me. Oh, my dear. We have a young man who claims uh, to be your son. Take a good look at him. So, do you know him or not, my dear? I do not. And uh, the trinket, the emblem of your most loved Hura. I've never seen it before. Very well. Take him down. We will execute him tomorrow. No. Oh, has something jogged your memory, my dear? So how do you find your mother, boy? Did you not know to come back here was certain death? Take him. My lord, I beg you, spare him. Give me one good reason. Because I will find you the Golden Fleece. What? Leave us. My lord. Get out! Out! What do you know of the Fleece? I can find it. Because I have protection of the gods. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 2nd, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to our show today, where it's going to be all Greek for us today. It's been a long time since I actually heard that expression used, or since I've used it, but I assume it's still in circulation somewhere. Often when someone would confront a situation that was confusing or chaotic, or when faced with a challenge of knowledge or skill one lacked, you'd say something along the lines of, well, it's all Greek to me. Of course, that's a bit of how I felt after doing some research for today's show. In light of the fact that we are now in that twilight zone, the limbo period between Greece's default on its debt to the IMF as of yesterday, and a referendum planned in Greece this coming Sunday. Until I embarked upon my research for today's show, uh, you know, in light of the fact, you know, <laughs> the, the real significance, I have to tell you, of what we just heard in our opener, for example, today, from the three-hour uh, TV movie Jason and the Argonauts, which I'll talk about at the end of the show today, uh, pretty much eluded me entirely. This Greek classic myth and legend was, pardon the expression, completely Greek to me in terms of its philosophical significance to Western culture despite the fact that I've always enjoyed the Jason and the Argonaut story and the many tellings of it. That's one of the issues we'll be looking into today. 
And as we heard in the opener, Jason had the protection of the gods. But what that meant, or what that would have meant to the ancient Greeks, versus what it might mean to you and I in today's religious context, could be two different things entirely. And more significantly, that distinction may very well lead us to the secret of why the very birth of philosophy itself has been attributed to the Greeks. Western civilization itself owes its historical and philosophical roots to the ancient Greeks to say nothing of its association with the birth of democracy. So with all those considerations in mind, what better opportunity to step back and take a big picture view of the Greek phenomenon, encompassing and touching upon economics, voting, democracy, referendums, Western civilization, Greek culture, and most importantly and significantly to us living in 2015, to the very birth of philosophy and why it happened in Greece, and get this, only in Greece, really. I sure learned a lot myself in researching for today's show, and I'd like to share with you some of what I regarded to be the essential and significant things, lesser-known things that we should all know about the birth of philosophy, our, you know, our freedom in this Western culture today. Of course, I can only touch on a few points in the short hour that we have, but sometimes you can learn more in an hour on a particular subject than you might otherwise <laughs> discover in a lifetime. One of the most interesting things I learned this week was about the amazing relationship of our cultural modern values and ideas of civilization to the Greek myths and legends with which so many of us may already be familiar. I have to admit that the whole nature of my planned commentaries today changed dramatically after I started doing some research. So, all that and more as our show progresses today, but first a reminder, you can always write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. You can visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. So, is it a Greek meltdown? Is that what we're actually seeing? And what's going to happen? Personally, I think just about anything can happen, or almost it might seem like not much has happened. As of yesterday, <coughs> July 1st, the country of Greece was in default on its government debt. On Sunday, this coming July 5th, the country is expected to participate in a referendum. Are they going to accept the terms of the bailout or go their own way? Now, there's really no big story to report here, just some news to update on how the inevitable end of the story will actually transpire. The story's been kind of told what's happened in Greece. Though in many ways, uh, you know, that story's been written, so all we have to do is watch it play out now. Economically, it's not hard to understand. You know, you spend more than you have, consistently, and you won't have anything to spend after a while, and after a while, people won't lend you any more money either. So while the economics is easy to understand in terms of the big, big picture view, you know, you can't spend more than you have, as opposed to all the nuances and complexities of the actual um, debt financing itself, um, what eludes most people is everything else beyond the economics point, which is not to say that we won't be following the money, as they say. With the Canadian holiday yesterday, I had to go online for some of the latest <coughs> updates on the Greek situation. Check with Reuters News as of July 1st, yesterday report, Gr uh, Greece offers conditional okay to bail out Germany skeptical. 
and they report that Prime Minister Alexei Tsipras has told international creditors Athens could accept their bailout offer if some conditions were changed and uh, on the aid for reforms deal. So basically, when they call it that, they're saying, well, you want, you want aid, you have to reform some things uh, the way that you're doing them from the way you're doing them now. So, of course, um, he's a leftist leader, have to understand that. He's asked for a 29 billion euro loan to cover all its debt service payments that are due in the next two years. So he wants to borrow enough money to pay their loans for two years. And, of course, Greece has become the first advanced, quote-unquote, economy to default on the IMF. And what's interesting is global financial markets reacted remarkably calmly to the widely anticipated Greek default, says the news, news report. And um, apparently, uh, Tsipras has been asking in his letter to the creditors, seen by Reuters, to keep a discount on value-added tax for Greek islands, stretch out defense spending cuts, and de- delay the phasing out of an income supplement to poorer pensioners. And, of course, initial reaction from ministers and senior officials was that the letter contained elements that the ministers would find hard to accept. And um, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, of course, said Greece had not fulfilled its obligations, and she said, basically, before the referendum, no further talks on an aid program can take place, she said. And that's basically where we are at right now. We're waiting for the outcome of the referendum on Sunday. Now, interestingly, they already had some uh, polls conducted there yesterday, and uh, again from Reuters News, a majority of Greeks would vote no to the terms of a proposed bailout deal by foreign lenders, but the lead narrowed significantly after the banks were closed this week. And it's interesting, results between those polled before and after Sunday's decision to close the banks and impose capital controls showed the gap narrowing. Of those polled before the announcement of the bank closures, 57% they would vote no, against 30% who would vote yes. When polled after, the no's were at 46% against 37 for yes. So it's changing. What a difference a single day can make in the opinions cast through a referendum. Hold a referendum before the consequences of a considered policy are felt, and uh, or hold it after, and you might get exactly the exact opposite reaction. Clearly, Greece is a political basket case from the, from the point of view of any expectations of rational governance. Not possible given the players and their ideologies, the consequences of which they are only now being forced to face because of the similar ideologies of their creditors and their desperation to collect on their loans. So you can see this is the big picture in terms of what's going on. Now, I'm planning to cover more of this as we continue in the show. But first, uh, you've heard his voice, perhaps, on three or four previous occasions on our show. But today I'll be counting on the wisdom of Professor Daniel L. or N. Robinson, from whose series, The Great Ideas of Philosophy, um, a number of our upcoming audio bites originate from. Now, I've edited the selected comments to focus particularly on the Greek phenomenon and its relationship to the birth of philosophy as a discipline. And I wanted to introduce this now because this is all part of one big picture. So here are a couple of the big questions of the day. Did the Greeks actually invent philosophy? And what exactly is philosophy? And more on that and the Greek crisis as the show continues.
Before we can address the question of whether the Greeks invented philosophy, we must be clear as to just what the invention is. In what sense did Pythagoras have the right to uh, call himself for the first time a philosopher over and against, say, Moses or Isaiah? Why not begin the history of philosophy equally with, say, Buddha, Confucius, and Socrates, instead of distinguishing the last of these from all earlier non-Greek thinkers? And what of the scientific and medical and engineering achievements of Egypt and the mathematical discoveries of India? Sharp lines can be drawn here only at peril. Indeed, the more developed thinking becomes, the more philosophical and scientific thinking tends to merge. So too with great literary works, with the poetic imagination, with the realized dreams of great architects and good kings, with the noble and improving techniques of uh, teachings of saints and prophets. Just where personal genius and virtue in such figures rise uh, to the level of impersonal and transhistorical significance will always be a topic of joyful dispute among scholars. Tell me, if you bring the fleece to me, what do you expect in return? Nothing more than my birthright. Well, my dear nephew, here is my rather generous offer. If you should bring the fleece back, I will restore you to Prince and your right to succession upon my death. Father, I must protest. I will even give you a boat. You'll have to find a crew, not easy, but you'll have a marvelous incentive. Because if you're not back in six months, your mother's life will be forfeited. Clean, simple, and not open to negotiation. Your mother for the fleece. Ah, philosophy. What is it, and did the Greeks invent it? More than a few qualifications are required when the question is posed this way. Ours is an uncommonly sensitive time when it comes to attributing all sorts of things to one people and leaving out the rest. Sensitivities aside, however, one really should be expected to explain why it is when one approaches the house of intellect, or at least uh, many of the rooms within it, that most of the foundations were laid and nearly all of the early rooms were occupied by the Greek-speaking people of the ancient world. Why is it that whether the subject is philosophy or mathematics or biology, political science, even economics, our thoughts constantly recur to the ancient Greek world as we search for origins? And in some cases, the early development of these subjects compares quite favorably with all that came later. What was it about these ancient Greeks that would have them achieving so much and in a relatively brief span of time? Was it something ethnic? It certainly was not genetic in any scientific sense of the term. And to say it was cultural is to confuse the effect with the cause. Perhaps it was something about the climate. There are theories to that effect. Ample sunshine, clean air, a slave economy, 
abundant food from the sea, all this providing leisure hours for the affluent to, to what? Lay the foundations for the succeeding two millennia of systematic thought in the full range of scientific and humanistic study? No, this gives far too much credit to vitamins A and D. It is not churlish, um, but to the point that out of the kingdoms of Mesopotamia, Egypt, Persia, all these had far greater physical resources, more slaves than decency is eager to recall, and that none of these empires produced even a semblance of philosophical thought and practice. Such achievements in science and technology, as history claims for them, never generated or grounded that rule of law, that mode of civic life, that perfectionist ideal that mark out the ancient Greek way of life. Clearly, the breadth and depth of accomplishment are too vast for single theories to embrace. Interesting. You know, as we'll discover in the second half of our show today, and again with the help of Professor Robinson, there are certainly a few good theories that do go a long way in helping explain the conditions that made the Greek miracle of discovering philosophy possible. Interesting comments he made just in there talking about Egypt and Persia and how they all had more physical resources than Greece, including, quote, more slaves than decency is eager to recall. I didn't include these comments in our audio bites today, but in his lecture, uh, Professor Robinson did make some interesting observations about slavery in Greece. Um, it's not what, what we might consider slavery from the North American experience. For starters, there's no evidence whatever that any of this slavery was organized along gender lines or along racial lines. It was an entirely social and economic phenomenon. And get this, this is really weird. Even slaves could own slaves. Okay, now that's pretty weird. From time to time, the government of the day even had to limit the importation of slaves because their presence would drive down the price of labor for those who weren't slaves and would cause unfair competition among all sorts of slave owners. So it was, it was always economics. It was always about that. And uh, remember, historically, slavery and various forms of serfdom were the production norm. In the absence of freedom and capitalism, which would require a very advanced level of governance, there aren't many other ways for a large collective of people to really produce the things they need to survive because there's no voluntary mechanism in order to enable that to happen. But further to the line of thinking we just heard from Professor Robinson, I found a fascinating editorial that ties the current Greek crisis to the ancient Greek world itself. Now here I thought, I was the only one who was seeing the whole Greek tragedy being played out before us as actually having roots going back to ancient times. And only yesterday, as I was going through my, my uh, <laughs> binge newspaper clipping, um, I discovered this perspe perspective from the pages of the National Post, and it was just published on June 23rd by Philip Ghirlando, Assistant Professor of International Politics at Trent University in Peterborough, and it was titled, The Real Roots of the Greek debacle. And it was so interesting, I thought I would just read the, 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 the gist of it here because there's not much you can add to this. It's very interesting. Much, and I'm quoting now, much of the recent commentary on Greece has focused on the economic dimensions of the crisis. 
such as the unsustainability of the country's finances, the economic depression that has caused so much misery, and the economic reforms demanded by creditors. But these aspects, although important, are inadequate to fully understand the character of the, the debacle. Every, or equally, sorry, or more, important are the symbolic aspects of Greece's relationship to Europe. And that's interesting because these are coming to the front over these last few days where I'd never seen it discussed before. The etymological origins of the idea of Europe are found in Greece. According to mythology, Europa was a princess who became Zeus's lover and bore three of his children. Europe, as a geographical expression, was first cited by the Greek writer Homer, arguably the founder of Western literature. Another symbolic element can be seen in how Europeans like to define their civilization in the largely secularized continent. The Judeo-Christian origins of its moral and hence political framework have largely been ignored in favor of the notion that it is the embodiment of human rights democracy, and the primacy of reason in human affairs. The last two, democracy and reason, find their origins in ancient Greece and sub subsequently spread across the continent after the Romans adopted and disseminated Greek culture across their vast empire. The symbolic value of democracy is also important because of more recent events. This is very important to, to always be aware of. You know, We forget this next point that he raises, and that is this. Greece was governed until 1974 by a dictatorship. It sure wasn't a democracy. After the fall of the regime, he writes, Greeks wanted to enter the European Economic Community, as the U EU was then called. And one condition was that it had to adapt its political system to Western Europe's, which they did, allowing them to enter the family of modern Western democratic nations. Consequently, for many Greeks, Europe, or more specifically, the EU, is associated with democracy and modernization. Being on the outside would, in the minds of many, threaten those things. This helps us understand some of the irrational features of the Eurozone drama that have observers, especially in North America, shaking their heads. From a strictly economic standpoint, the Euro makes no sense, since sharing a currency and interest rate with such diverse countries was bound to lead to the crisis that is now taking place. In a similar vein, Greece's participation is economically irrational. With its own currency, the country could devalue and regain competitiveness, which would increase output, employment, and improve public finances. And yet, despite this, the vast majority of Greeks desire to remain in this economically irrational currency union that has caused them so much misery. And so the question is why? What many are really afraid of, he writes, is exclusion from Europe in the symbolic sense. It's, it's interesting here how important symbolism is. And, and, you know, we always say, well, follow the money. Economics is what drives everything. I don't really think that's true. You can follow the money to find clues as to where activity is happening and where the action is, but it doesn't get right down to the root of the driving of certain forces. There's a lot of symbolism going on in politics, and people are willing to sacrifice millions for it, including look, even green. Look at green philosophy. In any case, they're talking about exclusion from Europe in the symbolic sense. It would sever them from the civilization that they helped to create and would be interpreted as a signal that the country's status as a modern democracy would be at risk. 
So this is why the unwillingness of creditor countries to compromise and the expulsion from the euro that this would effectively entail would be a serious psychological blow to the Greeks, but also to the Europeans, as they would lose the country that provided much of the material of Europe's civilizational identity. There's an interesting point. Subsequently, uh, Europe's sense of itself as a geopolitical actor that furthers human rights, democracy, and the primacy of reason will be badly shaken. Uh, these are the stakes that are ignored when pundits focus only on the economic dimensions of the Eurozone crisis. Now, end quote. That's, that's basically the gist of his article, and I think it hits a lot of the points. It draws in the larger picture to what we're also talking about today. And uh, as we go on to our next break, we're going to be hearing again from Dr. Robinson as he begins to speak about uh, Olympianism. I don't know if you've ever heard of Oly Olympianism, but it's, it's all got to do with the gods and the Greek gods and what that meant to the culture and how it eventually led towards the development of philosophy itself. So, uh, you know, the big punchlines don't come till the end of the show, but let's continue and we'll be back on the other side. The ancient Greeks, from the earliest record we have of them, tend to see themselves, as it were, estranged in the world. They are not part of the divine scheme. The Olympians are something very different from themselves and aloof to their struggles. They are here alone in an intimidating place. They are engaged in trade with people who speak a different language, who have different beliefs, who bow down in the presence of leaders bedecked in gold and taken to be gods. The Greeks in Asia Minor, in the settlements Miletus and Samos and nearby places where philosophy actually is founded, are the near neighbors of people whose cultural practices strike them as bizarre. They're trying to make their estrangement from the world less dangerous by coming to understand the world. There are oracles, of course, and priests, folk traditions, folk wisdom. But there is no final, ultimate authority on matters of truth in this culture. Whatever may be said of the Olympian deities, they are not scholars, and they have bequeathed no book of truths. Well, this isn't yet philosophy, but it's on the track. And we can ask the question again. Well, why the Greeks? Why these people? Why at that time? Why there, in that place? The era of earliest productivity in the matter of philosophy is in the 6th century B.C. Pythagoras died at about 500 B.C. Uh, Parmenides, the pre-Socratic philosopher, comes later in the 6th century. This is less than two centuries since the Homeric epics, and yet a philosophically rich body of thought is already being developed. But there is nonetheless a special feature of philosophy that really does mark it off from all the rest. Not in the sense of being better, or more advanced, or reserved to a privileged few. The philosophical perspective is one of criticism, and yes, skepticism. I hope this won't be taken as indelicate, or worse, heretical, but if God were to declare a truth to the community of philosophers, 
at least the best of them would say, and one would hope worshipfully. But how can we be sure of that? The point, of course, is that philosophy carries its truth, earns its truths the hard way, by working for them. What the scientist actually sees through aided or unaided sight, what the poet dreams and the prophet has revealed to him, the philosopher must find through argument, analysis, doubt, and yes, disinterest. The operative word here is disinterest, not uninterest. The blindfold that decorates the face of justice is intended to signify just that judicious disinterest that would have the chips fall where they may. The verdict will depend on evidence, not on the rhetorical skill of the advocate, the wealth of the defendant. What is believed by way of the philosophical worldview is wisdom itself. Not wisdom so that, not wisdom in order that, not to get more of this or more of that, not to be reassured, not for the good night's sleep, not for its consolations, with all due respect to Boethius. No, it's to get it right, and where getting it right might indeed be bad news also. It is not inevitably good news. Sometimes it is not news at all. Philosophy is different. The bottom line in philosophy is not to solve practical problems. It's not to solidify the civic bonds among people. It's not to make us feel better or worse. Rather, it is to test the most fundamental beliefs, the most fundamental values and convictions we have, and to test them for the purpose of getting them right. Just right, of course. And that's Professor Daniel Robinson speaking on the Greek history of, of how philosophy got developed. Um, what I found interesting, too, was that the Greeks found themselves in a situation where, of course, they were surrounded by all these cultures, and they were very much um, in, the, in the context of their time in the same kind of situation Britain was just a f couple of centuries ago, ago, having to rely on trade because you couldn't produce everything that you needed at home. And it always strikes me that countries that are forced to into trade rather than relying on local resources tend to be the ones that advance the quickest. And it doesn't matter whether they're an island nation or where they are, but those are the countries that seem to advance the greatest. And of course, uh, to do that, you have to develop kind of a philosophy. And interesting too, how the Olympian deities, uh, you know, didn't out, you know, set out any great book of truths or anything of that nature. Um, I liked how what he had to say about the issue of philosophy earning its truths the hard way by working for them through argument, analysis, doubt, and disinterest, not uninterest. Uh, that's what we try to do on this show, but um, it's also why I've often insisted that a real philosophy cannot be invented. It has to be discovered. That's where the work comes in. And of course, once you discover, th discover it and it fits the evidence, you have to have the evidence, uh, then you know that you've got something right. And when, how do you know you get it right? It has to coincide with both reality and your sense of reason. Now, if nothing else, Greece has today earned a reputation as being held, uh, you know, being a country as an example, rather, of what not to do in governance. Will Ontario become another Greece is a common question we hear these days in Ontario. <laughs> Will Alberta become another Greece is a common question that Albertans are already beginning to ask themselves. 
I saw saw a heading <coughs> in the Na- National Post. I think it was by Jack Mintz. It said something like Alberta is not yet Greece, but it's heading along that path. And of course, this Greece is the the fear the fear point now. You don't want to become like Greece. So, using Greece as an example of what might happen here if we don't change direction has become a popular media obsession of late, and one very scary article I ran across was a National Post uh, June 23rd feature, Greece's Bergening Healthcare Crisis, written by Mirin Khan in Athens. And um, it's very interesting. The The subheading of the article reads, Basic medical supplies are alarmingly close to being depleted. And this is scary. Here's what it had to say. Greece is the prescription drug capital of Europe. For every 100,000 Greek inhabitants, there are nearly 98 pharmacists at their disposal, the highest ratio in the European Union. By comparison, there are only 21 in the UK and 56 in nearest EU rival Bulgaria. On a per capita basis, Greece has double the number of pharmacists of France and Spain. And think of this, because those countries, France and Spain, they're, they're already highly socialist, so you can see how extremely out of kilter they are with all, even the countries around them. Basic medical supplies are frighteningly close to running out. In an economy where the, quote, butcher's knife, end quote, of austerity has been wielded across all areas of the public sector, health care has been gutted more savagely than most. Greece's hospital budget has been slashed by nearly 50% since the country was thrown into Euro turmoil. Spending on hospitals has fallen from 6.3% in 2008 to 3.9% of GDP in 2012. And consider, too, that probably the GDP itself is a lot lower. So those numbers, the absolute numbers, could be a lot lower than just these percentages. This has far outpaced the rate of economic contraction, where output has shrunk by a Depression-era 25%. Greece's 140 state hospitals saw a 94% fall in their budget in the first four months of this year. Now, as if that wasn't bad enough, here comes a punchline relative to the current crisis. Quote, it's a cash crisis, which could have cataclysmic implications for the country's fate outside of the Eurozone. So you might ask, well, how can it get worse outside the Eurozone? Well, here's how this works, according to this article. Greece imports almost all of its medicines. In the event that Greece is forced out of the monetary union, the cost of these supplies would soar under a dramatically undervalued drachma. Germany's top EU commissioner warned Brussels to prepare for a, quote, state emergency if Greece defaults on its debt on June 30th, which of course they've done. Uh, Public sector hospitals and insurance companies have racked up debts of more than 1.1 billion euros to foreign pharmaceutical companies since December 2014. Think about that. That's just six months ago. They've racked up debts. That's that's over and above what was already paid. 1.1 billion euros. So the talk now is to pay for the prescription these these prescriptions with IOUs, personal IOUs, in the form of domestic bonds. Apparently, Greece tried this once before, and it worked marginally. And uh, here's the commentary. The trouble with IOUs is that you're issuing a currency, and a Greek IOU won't have the same value as a euro, says Justin Knight at UBS. If they are used to pay wages or suppliers, then you soon get into trouble. When people go out and want to use the IOUs to buy bread, you end up with a de facto devaluation. 
This form of financial wizardry is not that far away from money printing in Greece, noted Stefan Dio of UBS back in 2012. Maria, a 39-year-old nurse, has witnessed the supplies crisis firsthand. Working in one of Athens' biggest hospitals for more than six years, her tales of reused bedsheets, scrimping on surgical gloves, and sharing of instruments are all too typical. The hiring freeze imposed on the sector forced Maria to complete her nursing duties along with administrative and accounting work for the hospital, which prompted her to leave the profession. After more than five years of these conditions, staff are incredibly burnt out, she says. We work overtime because we are so stretched, but nobody is ever paid for the additional work. So what do you suppose Maria decided to do after her nursing profession? Well, here, here's a, this, this I didn't expect. Now a PhD graduate in the works of Dutch-Portuguese Enlightenment philosopher Baruch Spinoza, Maria's attitude, like many of her compatriots, is stoic amid the despair. Of course, Stoicism was one of the things Spinoza was about. Spinoza said the pursuit of joy increases human energy and power over the world. That's the best lesson he can teach the Greeks today, she said. End quote. Well, wow, you know, from medicine to philosophy. At least she's in the right department that you have to be in before you can get back to medicine again, I guess. And it's a funny thing about philosophy. Um, I recall mentioning mentioning this before on a show or two. You know, often when people talk about being philosophical, they always do so from a position of resignation or loss. You always hear that. Well, he lost the game match, but he was philosophical about it, goes the familiar refrain. They lost all their property and belongings in the storm, but the owners are being philosophical about it. Uh, you know, what you rarely hear, though not never, is, you know, he earned a million dollars last month, but he was being philosophical about it. <laughs> Some people are. Some people understand it's a philosophy that gives good things, too, as well as the bad things. You have to be philo- philosophical about everything in life. Now, of course, um, from uh, the London Free Press, June 30th, Prime Minister puts critical decision in hands of voters. Um, in Athens, Greeks, of course, anxious pensioners swarmed closed b- bank branches Monday and long lines snaked outside bank machines as Greeks endured the first day of serious controls on their daily economic lives ahead of the July 5th referendum that could determine whether the country has to ditch the euro currency and return to the drachma. As strict capital controls took root following Prime Minister uh, Alexis Tsipras' surprise weekend decision to call a referendum on international creditors' latest economic proposals, Greece's population tried to fathom the impact of their day-to-day experiences. Following a breakdown in talks between Greece and the creditors, the country's in the midst of one of the most acute financial crises seen anywhere in the world in years. It's running out of time to get the money it needs to stave off bankruptcy. That has stoked fears of a crippling bank run, a messy Greek debt default, and an exit from the euro. As a result, the country's government imposed strict capital controls, none more onerous than a daily allowance of a measly 60 euros at the bank machine. The sense of unease was palpable among the crowds of pensioners, lined up outside bank branches hoping they might open. Many elderly Greeks don't have bank cards and make cash withdrawals in person and found themselves cut off from their money. I came here at 4 a.m. because I have to get my pension, said 74-year-old, one of the pensioners, uh, one of about 100 retirees waiting outside the main branch of the National Bank of Greece. I don't have a card. I don't know what's going on. We don't even have enough money to buy bread, he said. 
The capital controls come ahead of a big 1.6 billion euro payment Greece has to make to the International Mon Monetary Fund. It's unlikely to be able to do that without monetary assistance. Greece's bailout program with its European creditors officially expired Tuesday, meaning that the country will not have access to any of the money available if it doesn't secure a deal. And uh, for months, the left-wing-led Greek government, elected in January on a promise to bring an end to the austerity it blames for an acute economic recession, has failed to agree on the package of reforms demanded by creditors in exchange for access to the remaining 7.2 billion euros in rescue loans. That's a lot of money to get in debt. And of course, uh, another interesting side picture here, too, is we're all talking about Greece all the time. I just This is just a footnote on Europe. This is from the newspaper, The Epoch Times, May 21st, by David McHugh, and uh, talking about a very slow recovery that's going on in Europe since the last financial so-called uh, crash back in 2007 and 8. And he writes, The facts remain. The 19-country Eurozone economy is, is still smaller than it was before the global financial crisis that started in 2007. The Eurozone lags almost four years behind the United States, which recovered the output loss during uh, the, the global financial crisis in late 2011. It could take another year before Europe regains pre-crisis levels. That's a good eight years after the crisis. And remember, that's assuming everything goes okay with Greece. But then here was the sideline. Tiny Greece has been hogging the headlines as it tries to avoid defaulting on debt, but the real ball and chain on Europe's growth is much bigger Italy. The economy there remains 10% smaller than before the crisis. In fact, Italy has not shown sustained robust growth since it joined the euro in 1999. One reason, it can no longer devalue its own currency. Worse, successive governments have made only halting attempts to reduce legal protections that let workers challenge layoffs and force their rehiring. Cumbersome bureaucracy and corruption also remain issues. So there you have it, the situation in Greece as it is today. So now we're going to get into the next stage and the final stage of our uh, investigation into ancient Greece and how it has led to pro the situation today and where we are today. Again, uh, we'll be hearing from Professor Robinson and some excerpts from the movie um, Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> What is this slim-hipped youth to you? A toy? Do you play with him despite Peleus? Why? Because you are jealous. Because he worships Poseidon instead of you. Is that what you think, great Zeus? That my affection is provoked by jealousy? Rather than his beautiful youth. Rather than his thighs as smooth and strong as polished olive. Enough! Rather than his lips as sweet as There is greater agreement among scholars regarding the influence of Olympianism as a religion on the invention of philosophy. Now this is a subject unto itself, and I must touch it all too briefly. But recall from the previous lecture the particular epistemological vulnerabilities of the gods. They don't know everything. They don't think they know everything. They don't claim to know everything. 
Except for certain lapses, they don't care too much about us. Zeus is found admonishing the lesser gods and goddesses not to spend so much time concerned with human affairs. I shall be gentle with you. Who are you? I know your face, but... Your slave. One who admires you from afar and cannot find even in heaven, more majesty than I see before me. You are a god. Indeed. I am the king of gods, and yet I am your slave. You love me. Great Zeus, I love another. Mm-hmm. Jason. A boy. I am. Zeus, I am the inevitable. I am the irresistible. What do you want from me? Lie with me. No, I cannot. Not only my body, but my immortal soul belongs to him that I love. There is no power strong. This underscores further the total separation between, to use contemporary parlance, heaven and earth. We have to solve our problems. We propitiate the gods. We engage in rituals. We strive not to anger them. We surely do not adopt them as patrons of the polis, only then to shame them with our conduct within that polis. So there is a reverential attitude. But the ancient Greek world never hosted a state religion. It is an interesting fact. It is a rarity in the human experience. It never has a state religion, but of course it is never an entirely secular place either. Rather, there is a remarkable integration of the secular and the reverential, the secular and the religious, an integration of belief and myth with action and thought an integration that I think has probably not been matched since. It is difficult, I should think, for a citizen of the contemporary world to enter empathetically into that frame of mind in which one has a deeply religious attitude, but not a religion as such. You would deny me for the boy! I give you time to reconsider before your beauty fades. Are you all right? I don't know. Whatever may come, have faith in our love. put us to shame. In one of Plato's dialogues, we are told that we are all like puppets. 
and the gods can move us any which way they will by pulling on these strings. But we have one string that we can pull back on. And Socrates tells us it's the golden cord of reason. There's that string again. With it, we can resist the gods themselves, even if ultimately our fate is not in our hands. Win or lose in such contests, we are not simply foils, merely material objects to be moved around by the whim and caprice of hidden forces. Lose that reason. Suspend that criticality. Become gullible. Accept anything that custom serves up and you enter the life of a puppet on a string, the life of a slave. I remember having to study Greek mythology and legends when I was in high school, and I clearly recall myself asking something along the lines of, why do we have to learn all this you know, legendary stuff, all of this make-believe crap, or of all the stuff that we could be learning, why are they still teaching us this? We were always taught Greek mythology from a literary point of view, with references to culture as a backdrop. Not surprising, I suppose, that given it was an English class that was being taught. And so we always taught it from an English point of view. But the philosophical issue that um, Dr. Um, Robinson brought up in that clip were, were tremendous. The point to be made that I'd never really heard Greek mythology being taught in a philosophical broader sense, and that's what made it relevant and interesting. Uh, that there is greater agreement among uh, scholars regarding the influence of Olympianism as a religion on the invention of philosophy um, brought up the role of necessity of religion. And Dr. Robinson points out how Zeus is certainly unlike any god envisaged by the world's major religions. He has no power to compel obedience. And, you know, as and Dr. Robinson pointed out how the epistemological vulnerability of the gods, they are not all-knowing. Uh, this almost defies most definitions of what a god is supposed to be, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present. Uh, you know, when the god Zeus tells Medea that he is a slave to her beauty. He says, indeed, I am the king of gods, and yet I am your slave. There is no power stronger than my love, she says, uh, meaning very clearly in this context that even a god has no power to override that love or her decision. This is very unusual. Can you imagine any god ever saying about mortals, uh, you know, they put us to shame? <laughs> this is a compelling departure from the popular conceptions of godliness or of deities. Robinson refers to this complete separation of the heavens from earth, yet a reverential attitude remains in the culture. So here is the, the, the key that he brought. He said that the ancient Greeks never had a state religion of any sort, and that was indeed remarkable. But they had something like it. Through their mythology, they seem to have embraced the symbolic as the real, though not as reality. And uh, real, of course, meaning having a real meaning, as Scottish philosopher John McMurray would say. So what the ancient Greeks apparently achieved, according at least to Robinson and a great number of scholars, was an integration of reverence with secularism, the very thing that we have often cited on our show as being something needed to keep a culture united, especially with the declining influence of religion in that role or capacity. Not been matched since, says Robinson. They had a religious attitude, 
but no religion as such. So his observation seems to add credence to one of my own contentions that I've put forward on past broadcasts, that it's not so much a religion that is a uniting force in a culture, but a common story. And though they had no state religion or other official religions, what the Greeks did have and what all cultures and societies have is something we've talked about quite often on past shows. They had a story, you know. So what's your story? Remember that one? What this confirms for me is that it's not a religion as such that a society seems to need, but a shared story, even if it's only allegorical, symbolic, or mythical, or real. Whatever that story is, it has to be compelling enough and encompassing enough to demonstrate most of humanity's strengths and weaknesses. It would have to be highly philosophically uh, oriented. It has to be about good and evil. As a rule, but not as a principle, since there's a lot of exceptions, but as a rule, people who like the same stories, whether they're written, heard, or watched as a play, movie, or TV show, will share the same values, ideas, and experiences that create a clear understanding of how alike we all are. And speaking of stories, I just wanted to say a word on the, on the film Jason and the Argonauts, the made-for-TV uh, 2000 uh, version that we've heard a few clips from today and missed a couple. But uh, it was written by Matthew Falk and Mark Skeeton, directed by Nick Willing, and starred Jason London as Jason. And it had a, quite, a, quite a cast, Frank Langella, Natasha Hestridge, um, Olivia Williams as Hera, Angus McFadden as Zeus, Dennis Hopper as Pilius, he was great in it, Jolene Blaylock as Medea, who, who most of people would know as T'Pol from the uh, Star Trek Enterprise television series, and a whole host of all, all, a great cast. This was a three-hour uh, made-for-TV movie that had a $30 million budget in 2000, but wisely kept the story to the original tale without embellishing it with modern contrivances, including an undue use of special effects just to impress us for, for this, the sake of special effects. They didn't go superhero on us either. But the special effects uh, were still a lot of fun. Uh, that may also account for its mediocre 6 out of 10 rating I noticed on one website. Those expecting some kind of Star Wars special effects extravaganza or a modern interpretation that departed wildly from the original would have been a bit disappointed perhaps, but not if you're hoping for a true telling of the story, if you will. I myself would give it a 8 or 9 out of 10. I've watched it a few times and seem to enjoy it more with each telling. It's a solid story, and I actually cared about the characters, and as I happily discovered, thanks to the comments of Professor Robinson, the movie appears to be utterly faithful to the spirit and values of the ancient Greek tradition. What's interesting, too, is that although, um, you know, the conversations in the movie between the god Zeus, Zeus and the mortal people, um, as portrayed in the movie, the mortals never actually encountered the gods. The sequences that we've heard seem to happen in, in say, the dreams of Medea, and the constant rolling of the thunder and the dark stormy clouds were visual representations of the Olympian gods as they argued and fought with each other. The mortals on earth only, only ever actually saw and experienced the storm clouds, uh, you know, that's all they ever saw while the, while the gods were having their conversations and arguments. Very artistically and, uh, and tastefully done. Some of the images were worthy of being beautiful paintings that you'd gladly hang on your wall at home. Traditional Greek art. 
For myself personally, I regard the 2000 TV movie version of Jason and the Argonauts to be the most authentic telling of the story, almost a Greek biblical standard, if you will, much in the same way I would regard the late British actor Jeremy Brett's interpretation of Sherlock Holmes to be the most authentic, even though I pretty much like all of the Sherlock Holmes interpretations I've seen. Now, of course, the, the, the theme is all about good and evil. And if you're familiar at all with the 1963 Ray Harryhausen version with the stop-motion effects figures of Jason and the Argonauts, I can testify as a witness that every scene you'll find in that version of the story also appeared in the 2000 version. They make a great double feature for a rainy Saturday afternoon, not unlike the one we just had in the weekend past. Uh, be sure to watch the Harryhausen one first, though. So to conclude, you know... About the gods, you know, um, Robinson points out how reason is the weapon with which we can resist the gods. That comes out of this Greek mythology. We are not simply foils, he concludes, to be moved around by hidden forces. Lose that reason, suspend that criticality, become gullible, accept anything that custom serves up, and you enter the life of a puppet on a string, the life of a slave. Uh, I have to say I found that conclusion of his simply chilling to the core. If I understand what Professor Robinson, ha Robinson has said, it's this. The person who believes in nothing will fall for anything. In the absence of a coherent, unifying, and rational philosophy, human beings are unable to choose and so become the instruments of someone else's choices. They become, in a word, slaves to the purposes and intentions of others. And I think some of the greatest slaves among us are our politicians, especially those who brag about being pragmatic, which they want us to think means being practical, but which really means being practically rudderless and directionless with respect to the big picture. The whole Greek nation has been running on the pragmatism of a left-wing ideology, which is an ideology that can only lead to bankruptcy and self-destruction. The pragmatists have carried out the leftist ideology with pragmatic efficiency, and they have only themselves to blame. You know, if ignorance of the law is not supposed to be held as an excuse, perhaps ignorance of the principles of good governance and democracy should also not be permitted as an excuse to destroy the lives and fortunes of millions. So, as the coming weekend approaches, all the world's attention will be focused on a Greek nation which faces a referendum on Sunday, whose outcome is already somewhat predetermined. Whether they vote yes or vote no, the Greeks are about to become much more greatly impoverished and poorer, at least in the short term, because they can always choose, uh, you know, to change your long-term direction. They could check into their own past culture to investigate this. Basically, right now, they're voting either for a rock or a hard place. For the time being, at least, it appears that the idea of democracy is all Greek to the Greeks, as it has increasingly become to the rest of the Western world. We tend, tragically and with dire consequences, to associate the simple act of voting with democracy itself. There are certainly times in history when the difference between a totalitarian nation and a relatively free nation could be clearly identified along those lines. But having a vote in the affairs of a nation is far from being able to say that one lives in a democracy. So even though this show is not a democracy, I vote we call it a day. Until next week, when we return, and we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. 
everything will be alright. For the last time, Hogan, I have heard no rumors, I will listen to no rumors, and I'm sure that there's no foundation for any rumors. Suit yourself, Commandant. But if it happens, you've got some big decisions to make. Big decisions? I'm completely loyal. But if they knock off Adolf, loyal to whom? Hmm. I will, of course, defend the Fuhrer with my life if necessary. On the other hand, if the conspiracy is organized, they may have overwhelming strength, in which case I... I... Commandant, wouldn't it be easier if you people just had an election every four years? 